breakfast. It was this book, old book uh, at my seat, left by um, Jay, who lives with us. And uh, it was entitled The Emotional Life of the Students. Emotional Life of Students. And uh, it was uh, written by a bunch of Harvard psychologists in 1961. So I read the preface, Jay, I read the preface um, and the introduction. And uh, it talks about students face identity crises. Right? They, the, the gist of the book was some, at least, or a lot of the kinds of emotional challenges, psychological challenges faced by college students, even in 1961, whatever your impression was of the past, they had troubles then too, um, even at Harvard, Harvard students, and uh, they had identity crises. And that's our message series this fall is on identity. What is our identity? And for us, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, what does the Bible have to say about what our identity should be? And we've talked about different aspects of identity. We've come tonight to uh, uh, our identity as witnesses, as witnesses to the gospel. And I'm going to read a passage from 2 Corinthians 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. I'm going to focus on verse 7. Follow along as I read God's word. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to focus tonight on verse 7 there. We have this treasure in jars of clay. You go to the picture. David, Shalom. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power uh, belongs to God and not to us. So this is a, here we go, an amphora, a Roman amphora. This is dug up a couple years ago in Italy. A jar of clay. This is, what, this is what's meant. This is what Paul means, a jar of clay. You go to the next picture. Inside, they discovered gold. 300 solidi, gold, Roman gold coins. Each one of those is worth 275,000 denarii. So if you know you read the Bible, occasionally they talk about denarius, that's what you, uh, a worker would get paid in a day. Each one of those coins is worth 275,000 of those. And there were 300 coins in this jar of clay. You know, and this was, this, is, this was buried sometime, like, right at the end of the Roman Empire, right? The barbarians were coming through. And someone took a huge fortune, and they dug it there, and they never recovered it. Unless you about what happened. <laughs> the barbarians come through, came through. And now we have it. So this is, this is what Paul means, is the treasure in the jar of clay. We, you and I, if we are in Christ, are a jar of clay. That's Paul's, Paul's metaphor. We are a jar of clay, but we have treasure. Uh, let me say three, 
three things. First, I'm going to talk about our treasure. Second, Jesus' treasure. And uh, third, uh, jar, jars of clay. All right, first, our treasure. Uh, so Christine and I recently, my wife, Christina, she's Korean, born in America. Her parents are immigrants from Korea. So we went, we went to see Crazy Rich Asians. We didn't know if we should see it. Um, I was a little worried, you know, given family dynamics, if it would be triggering for Christine. Yeah. But Bill and Debbie said, you should see Crazy Rich Asians. So we went um, down to the garden, we had to babysit our kids. That's why he lives with us, by the way. <laughs> Some others of you were there, too. And uh, we went and we saw it. And uh, it was great, by the way. It's like the first good romantic comedy made since the 90s. <laughs> Before you were born. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we're debating, like, what happens to the American romantic comedy? Part of the challenge with the romantic comedy is you need tension. You need conflict to, to, to make it work. And in the, the current American context, it's kind of hard to have con con conflict. Because, you know, you bring home whoever you want to marry, and your parents just need to be cool with it. Right? They just need to be cool with it. It doesn't matter. Unemployed musician, who cares? Your parents have to be like, great, follow your heart. <laughs> in, the, uh, in the Asian context, right, there's still some of that traditional, like, no, no, I'm not okay with it. And so that's the premise of the movie. It brings very true to my own life. I have an um, Asian mother-in-law. You know, she'd say, say stuff to me, like, even after Christina, she, she sat me down once at the dinner table, and she was like, you know, you've got to realize that we were hoping Christina, she'd marry someone like better looking, richer. Seriously, <laughs> <laughs> it's great getting that honest feedback. Getting <laughs> that honest feedback. These mother and mother are good for that, right? They don't sugarcoat it. Uh, they just feed it to you straight. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, in the, you know, in the movie, there's that promise. I was discussing with Christina afterwards, like, you know, this is such a trope. I mean, it was true if you read John Austin, it was true of, like, English mother-in-laws. You know, there's this trope, right? It's like the disapproving Asian mother-in-law. And it's like, surely no Asian mother-in-laws who approved. And Christina's like, you know, I don't know. And I think, like, what, is, <laughs> what, what is behind that? And by, you know, we joke, but like, if you have family troubles, come talk to us. We've done a lot of that counseling over the years, Christina and I. But part of that trope is like, the, you know, and I understand this, the older I get, and I have kids, uh, the more sympathetic I am to this, it's like, the, the mother-in-law is like, she wants to get the best deal she can get, right? She wants to get the best. I've been amazed sometimes with the disapproval in, for Princetonians, never mind the ethnic origin, but just of parents of potential marriages. You know, I remember one, one couple uh, from PCF, and it was like, they were like, it doesn't matter which standard you wanted to choose, like Christian or secular, right? They had it all going for them on both sides, money, success, education, looks, like, you name it. And still the parents were against it, right? Still hardcore, hardline, no. Because it's like it's like you worry, like, oh, if your child gets married, it'll distract them from their, their goals. And so it's like, okay, do you want your child to marry someone who would follow them in their goals? Like, no, 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 because you've got to marry someone who would be ambitious and successful on their own. This is this like Catch-22, right? Uh, but anyway, in the, in the movie, and in, the, in, the, in my own life, so there's this sort of bring, culture of brinksmanship, right? You're trying to get the best deal. And so, you know, you're like, no, I will cut you off. And then you as a child are like, I will, you know, never see you again. And you, it's like 1950s geopolitics, old geopolitics. <laughs> not to the brink. And then hopefully, not in every case, unfortunately, but hopefully you pull back from that brink and you come back. You know, I'm amazed at how many couples I've known who it just like the whole time they were dating and engaged. It was just conflict, 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 disapproval. And then on the wedding day itself, you know, and I'm there because I've done the counseling and so I know all this. 
then on the wedding day, you know, the parents are like, oh, we're so proud and thankful to have this young man or young woman in our family. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you bite your tongue. By the time in those situations, never speak up. Um, be, thankful, be thankful that they would pass. But part of that, I mean, I touch on that. Part of it is like we, you know, we're searching for treasure. And the kind of treasure we want is like as much as we can get. Right? As much as we can get. That's the treasure I want. I mean, you know, I have kids. It's like, yeah, I'll take everything. I, yeah. Let's maximize. And Princetonians, we're treasure seekers. If you were the sort who was just content to take the easy path out, you wouldn't be here. You all share with me and Christina an inner compulsion to seek something, to seek to achieve, to strive. That might come from a good place or it might come from a bad place, but we have this treasure seeking. I want, and often you feel there's a zero-sum game, right? We're engaged in a marriage. It's a competitive market where it's perceived as such. Um... Academia is a competitive market. Your classes are a competitive market. The job market. Remember reading a guy who had been you know, achieving at the highest level through education, uh, step after step, and trying to get a Supreme Court clerk for a Supreme Court justice. We know a bunch of people who've done that, actually, uh, being at Princeton. But it's like, and then he failed. He failed. And it's like, you know, who am I now? Did he clerk for a Supreme Court justice? Could still have a lucrative career or whatever, be a fancy lawyer, but did not clerk for a Supreme Court justice. This is competitive. It's a zero-sum game. If you, if someone else gets it, you don't. And so for us, if we're treasure seekers, uh, we feel we're in competition uh, with each other. And uh, if you win, I, maybe that means I lose. Let me talk about the second thing, Jesus' treasure. Jesus' treasure. So I, I, read, I was reading a lot. Like, if you read self-help books, American self-help books, you get... Um, not that I do, actually, but I read reviews of them, so maybe I should say, but you, you get a lot of advice. This is a very common, both Christian self-help books and secular self-help books, a very common strand of advice is um, look within for answers, okay, and to be cut toxic people out of your life. Cut toxic people out of your life. I was reflecting on that, cutting toxic people out of your life. Because, you know, actually, I, it's not to say, that you, you can understand an element of wisdom in that. Uh, bad company corrupts good morals, that's out of the scripture, and uh, not to know, I mean, even Christine and I, in our lives, you can have relationships which are deeply abusive that you need to separate from. If you're in that situation, talk to us. Talk about that, too. Uh, so it's not to say that, you know, I want to just say, oh, that's ridiculous. But, what people mean when they talk about cutting toxic people out of your life in American self-help books, it's not just like, oh, that abusive relationship. They mean like, in a much broader-based way, people are causing trouble. And, um, and I was reflecting on that, because thinking about it from Jesus' perspective, what if Jesus had taken a path of cutting toxic people out of his life? <laughs> right? Think about that for a moment. Like, what if Jesus, if his approach to the world and his ministry was to cut toxic people out of his life? Certainly, whatever... We do, certainly, we can say of Jesus, that's not what he, he did. I think this is a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. about the sermon, uh, not the Sermon on the Mount, about the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, Jesus is telling this parable, who is my neighbor? That's what he's asked, who is my neighbor? And he tells this parable of the Samaritan, those were like an ethnic group the Jews hated, and vice versa. 
And he's telling this parable of, you know, here's a man beaten up on the road, and some Jews, a priest, a, you know, Levite, um, they go and they just pass him by. The guy's been beaten up by robbers. They pass him by because they don't want to get involved. There, and this is what Martin Luther King Jr. said, they're asking the question, if I stop to help him, what will happen to me? And then a Samaritan comes along, who from a Jewish perspective, you would never expect to stop the man. And the Samaritan stops and helps the man. Takes him to an inn, pays for him to be cared for. And comes back later, says, so come back later to um, check on, check in on him. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. said, that you know, unlike the ones who passed by, they were saying, if I stop to help him, what will happen to me? And often that's how we are with treasury. We're like, I, I, I need to keep my treasure to myself. But if I, if I care about other people, let alone being around toxic people, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan said, not what will happen to me if I stop, but if I don't stop, what will happen to him? Right? This is what the Samaritan is saying. If I don't stop, what will happen to him? And this is what Jesus has done for us. This is what Jesus has done for us. It's not to say, if I hang out with these people, what will happen to me? What will happen to Jesus? He was crucified. That's what happened for spending time with mankind, humankind. But instead, what was his purpose? This is going back to verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 4. To bring a ministry of the mercy of God. This is, this is what Paul's talking about. What is this treasure he's talking about? This treasure of Jesus. It's this ministry of mercy. Right? And what does he say? What does he say about Jesus down there in verse 4? The glory of Christ who is the image of God. We proclaim. That, what, for what we proclaim in verse 5 is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as the Lord. I heard a pastor say this recently, at its most base, to be a member of the church, you need to say this, just this, Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Lord of the name. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Down there in verse 6. Let the light shine out of darkness. God who said, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Give the light of the glory of God. You go back to the Old Testament. The glory of God, uh, when the, the, the Jews were wandering in Sinai for 40 years, the glory of God it went before them to guide them, a pillar of cloud at day and a pillar of fire at night. And then the glory, God dwelled in the temple. Well, it had, you know, God had appeared in all his glory to Moses, and Moses would come down from speaking to God on Mount Sinai. His face would shine, and the people couldn't stand it, so he would veil his face. Paul's just been talking about that in chapter 3 the Second Corinthians. And then this glory led them, and then the glory dwelt in the tabernacle, and then in the temple. And then in the time of Ezekiel, as the people of Israel were taken off into exile, as, uh, as uh, Jerusalem was taken off into exile, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. And so when Jesus came to flesh that out, what he did was to bring the glory of, the, of, the glory of God back. John, in the Gospel of John chapter 1, it says, we have seen his glory as of the only one from the Father. We have seen his glory. So this is what Jesus has done. And he's not just restored status back how it was in the day of the temple. He's brought it back such that, going back to chapter 3, verse 18, so we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Unlike Moses, who had to veil himself, because he's shown from talking to God, we can approach God with unveiled face. How? Because of what Jesus has done. Let me, let me use a coin metaphor. Thinking about those gold coins... Jesus, it says here in verse 4, is the image of God. And it's this point where Jesus has asked uh, some, some of the, uh, so, uh, some, some men are trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to um, uh, test him. And they ask, they bring a coin, because the Romans required a tax. And the Jews hated the Romans, because the Romans were their imperial occupier. 
And so they're asked, should you pay this tax? They ask Jesus, should you pay this tax? Because if he says no, they'll say, oh, he's a rebel, and they'll get the Romans to kill him. If he says yes, they'll say, oh, he's a traitor to the Jewish people. So what will he say? And so he takes the coin, a denarius, one two hundred seventy-five thousand, the, the value of one of those gold coins. He takes a denarius, and of course the Romans printed the image of Caesar on the denarius, right? The image of the emperor. And he takes it, and he says, whose image is here? Caesar's. The answer says, surrender unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God. What is Jesus saying there? Well, he says, pay, say, pay your taxes, just FYI. <laughs> pay your taxes. And, uh, but B, he's saying, this coin is made in the image of Caesar, so pay it to him. But you are made in the image of God. So we know this from Genesis 1. You are made in the image of God. And so you belong to God. Aside one other point, we are made in God's image. A part of that is we owe him worship. Right? We owe worship to God. And so if we turn away from God, then we are, we are in rebellion against him. If we turn away from him, we owe him worship. It's one side. It's a hard, hard message we need to hear before we hear the gospel. Our sins are many, but, but his mercy is more. His mercy is more. And what is that mercy? The flip side of the coin. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The light has shone out of the darkness. All that sin and all that brokenness, if you call Jesus Lord, if you, what, is, what does he desire of us? Our, our treasure? No, he desires our, our hearts, our submission, our worship, our love. And in return, what do we receive? We receive the gift of being daughters and sons being brothers and sisters of joy and of peace. Peace with God and joy uh, as we go through our life, even as we face uh, uh, the struggles of this world. So it's the treasure Jesus gives to us. Not like ours. Not what will happen to me if I stop, but what will happen to them if I don't. Right? So third, I want to talk about jars of clay. Jars of clay. Because I, I love this image. This is, what, this is what Paul says. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We've been given this. This is where we turn to talking about an identity as witnesses. Because if you're in Christ, I, I pray if you're not a Christian, and hearing that message, this treasure that's found in Jesus, I would ask you to receive that. I would encourage you to receive that treasure. Find out, understand what it means to call Jesus Lord. And call him Lord. I pray that for you. If you are a Christian, if you call your, if you call Jesus your Lord, you have this treasure. There's this. Here's the struggle of being a jar of clay. You're like, okay, I have this great treasure, all this gold, old heavy gold. I think about this gold. I was in class at Princeton years ago. Uh, Peter Brown, Professor Peter Brown, he's retired now. He was like the leading expert in his field, late antiquity, in the world. He created the field back in the day. And so once we were sitting in class, and he wanted us to understand uh, Roman coinage and uh, uh, the crisis of the Roman Empire. So as the Roman Empire kind of declined, they took gold coins and they would debase them. Right? It's like, in, in the modern day, you want to create money as a, as a ruler, you just print more. Or you just press buttons on the computer. I don't know how that works, right? Like Venezuela's doing this right now, hyperinflation. But part of the reason they use gold is because you can't just make gold. You've got to find some in the ground. So they would, what they would do is they would debase the currency by adding base metals, you know, copper, um, tin, in with the gold. And so he got, Peter Brown, he brought to us, he wanted us to understand that he brought these uh, coins. He checked them out of the library, the museum, wherever they keep antique coins at Princeton. 
Imagine having that power. <laughs> and uh, so he checked them out because he wanted us to fit. He pulled them out of their cases. Again, he's like, feel them. Because, you know, you feel a solid gold coin is heavy. And then as they debased them, they got lighter. The name of the coin was Solidus, solid. They get less solid as the empire declines. But what we have in Christ is that solid gold. Weight, ancient, real. Not to draw reference to Harry Potter, not leprechaun gold. This is our treasure seeking, right? It's like, we're like at that Quidditch World Cup, forgive me for the analogy, um, showing off for Vila's and seeking leprechaun gold. If you don't get that reference, read Harry Potter. It's only for cultural literacy. Um, uh, we have this solid treasure, but we have it in jars of clay. We're us. We're us. That's the challenge. Who am I to share this treasure to tell people about Christ? Look at my life. It's, what does Paul say, afflicted, crushed, per persecuted, struck down. We have the body of death in our path. Maybe you don't feel that way, but it's midterm speed, so give it a few days. <laughs> and so we say, I'm a jar of clay. This is challenge. What do I have to say? And why would I even be the one to say it? Well, later in chapter 5, I thought about talking about witnesses out of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, where Jesus says, well, where Paul says, uh, <clears throat> through the Holy Spirit, you are ambassadors for Christ. This is exhortation. You're ambassadors for Christ. But even to the ambassador, the princess do this, like, yeah, if I'm really excellent and I make it through the foreign service exams and then I rise up to the State Department, one day I can be an ambassador and then I can speak for the United States. Not really. You send communicates home to get ignored. But, you know, then I can speak for the United States. And, uh, and so if we draw an analogy like that to our Christian life, we'd be like, when I am awesome, when I am excellent, when I have risen through the ranks, when others have approved me, then I can be an ambassador for God. That's not, that's not what Paul means by it. That's not the image I want to give you. Even if you are a jar of clay, you can be used for God. First of all, it's not about your great skill in sharing the faith. What does Paul say earlier? Uh, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, we refuse to practice coming back in verse 2. Or to, or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Open statement of the truth. And then down uh, below it says, um, God himself has shown in our hearts. It requires God to work. You know, if you're, if you're like making a pitch to venture capitalists to raise money, or if you're making a business decision, you have to look at a return on investment. When will I recruit this investment? We need for venture cap capitalists or for a bank, you have to promise it. In X number of years, you will recoup your investment. Here, as a Christian, you don't need to share your treasure that way. You can give it away liberally. Because ultimately, it's for God to make it, the light shine in their hearts. It's just for you to witness, to be that jar of clay and witness. So that's one. And second, you say, oh, well, I'm afflicted, crushed, perplexed. I'm, I'm not up to it. I'm not strong enough in my faith, or I'm not together enough in my life, I'm not skilled enough. Or it's too hard. The obstacles and opposition I'm running into are too great for me to share the gospel. But let me say this. Let me give this as an encouragement to you. God <coughs> desires to use you, the jar of clay that you are, and me, the jar of clay that I am. His treasure is most effectively shared by the exact kinds of jars of clay with all our brokenness and perplexedness and affliction that we are. What do I mean by that? I'll give an example. 
So, um, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Who's heard of Kierkegaard? Right? Now, Kierkegaard, who's read any Kierkegaard? Now, who's understood it? I'm going to Christian. So, anyway, Kierkegaard, he's a 19th century Danish uh, philosopher. And he fell in love with this woman. Uh, what's, what's her name? Regine Olson. She was in love with him. They got engaged in Copenhagen. And uh, he was this serious philosopher. He was tortured by philosophical questions. The Galen philosophy of all things. You know, that was the thing in 19th century, yeah, Galen philosophy. But he was tortured by it. He was serious. He wanted to understand hard questions. And so after a year being engaged, he felt like the life of seeking truth was incompatible with marrying this woman he was in love with. And, he was in love with him. and so he broke it off with her. Philosophers, right? <laughs> and uh, he broke it off with her. And uh, she was devastated. He was devastated. He was, like, crying in his bed every night. And uh, she was, like, threatening to kill herself. And uh, her father was imploring him, like, for her sake, that he would consider this. And then he's like, okay, I need to lie. So he started saying mean things to her and to her father to, like, try to end it. Because he felt to pursue God, he had to do that. And to do his work, he had to do that alone. And, you know, I look at that. You read that. You're like, oh, Kierkegaard, like, why? She's married the girl and have little Kierkegaards <laughs> and be happy. I'll be good at school with your intellectual genes, you know, and, uh, and live your life. But you know, the man was, he was a very particular kind of jar of clay. He was very particular kind of, kinds of Christ. What, 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 what do I raise that? Well, my oldest brother, who's a philosophical type with many graduate degrees, um, like, he read Kierkegaard in, in high school. For him, Seeing Kierkegaard struggle with the Christian faith in the particular way that he struggled with it was crucial for my brother. Right? There's a whole subset of people, they're not so numerous, but there is a whole subset of people where that guy, that Danish guy, who foolishly turned away, I mean, yeah, the wear ladies don't date philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> and the years, they're much more stable. <laughs> but him, the particular struggles he had, that speaks that opens up the truth, that demonstrates the truth of the faith to that kind of person. You, there are people where the experience of the faith, this is how they need to know, is this treasure real, this treasure of Jesus? Is it real? They need to see it in your life. They need to see it in your life. And your life, and your life, and our life together as followers of Christ, if you call him Lord. So embrace the image of our play. Questions for KCP, this is a, is a great challenge for this, right? Because it's a little frightening. People ask some difficult questions, you don't know. Will they be, like, friendly and joking? Will they be hostile? Uh, will they be argumentative? You don't know. Mostly it's fun, but occasionally not. <laughs> occasionally it's really intense. It's a wonderful opportunity to just go out. You are the best God chooses to use. Who did God call? Who when Jesus came? Who were his disciples? First he called some fishermen. Why would you choose fishermen, right? Uh, they're, like, they didn't have huge educational backgrounds. They didn't have any position or status or prestige. Then he recruited a tax collector. The people hated tax collectors, right? They're the ones who extracted money for the Romans. Uh, then he got uh, Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a terrorist group, right? They would go in crowds and knife Rome people who collaborated with the Romans. Somehow Simon the Zealot, like this is Jesus' policy for effective ministry. And through it, he changed the world. Right? We're, we're worshiping God here. Why? Because the message came through these jars of clay. It didn't come through human might or power or wisdom. It came through normal people, all kinds of different normal people. It came through them. And so we see it's true, and it's, it's truth and it's power. 
we see it can transform people like you and people like me and people like them, whoever. Right? We have this treasure in jars of clay. You have that, if you're in Christ, receive that huge pile of solid gold coins and share it. It's not a zero-sum game, friends. It's not a zero-sum game. There's as much treasure as we are willing to share as people are willing to receive. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this, your word. We pray, we pray that you would teach us, that you would show us your glory. We give praise, Lord God, that in Jesus Christ, the separation between ourselves and the Father is taken away. And we can come before you clothed in his righteousness, our sins covered, your mercy so much more. And Heavenly Father, I thank you that it's not merely that you forgive us, but more than that, that you send us, you use us as your instruments share this treasure. Lord God, I don't know all the cracks in our respective jars, Lord God. I don't know all the troubles and the afflictions present in the room. Help us, Heavenly Father, to support one another in that, to minister to one another, to care for one another. But make us bold, Lord God, whoever we are, to share that treasure. Whatever challenges we face in sharing the news of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, give us boldness and joy skill and winsomeness and grace to do that. To do it with uh, zeal as the fits the glory of you, Lord, that you possess. We pray this in Jesus.